Hey, thanks for joining me for today's podcast. I'm Brandon Laws, your host of the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Today's episode, I have a conversation with Chris Creel. He has a book called Adaptive, Scaling Empathy and Trust to Create Workplace Nirvana. I enjoyed my conversation with Chris so much. Got a chance to geek out with him a little bit. We talked about technology and how organizations are now using bots to free up their people on administrative tasks, but even like conversations that we're having with our employees as well, like might be difficult conversations, might be coaching conversations. And we're at a point now where technology is helping us and guiding us to become better humans, as Chris would say. So we touch on the bots, we touch on other technology that organizations are using, and we talk about this idea of an adaptive organization. And Chris had run an experiment called the Adaptive Experiment in 2013. And his book really talks about it more in depth. We jump all over the place. We didn't cover everything in the book, of course. Uh, There's so much meat to it. But uh, we gave you a lot of great nuggets that you can take back to your organization just to get your wheels turning a little bit. So I'm hoping that this sparks some ideas in you. Again, Chris was so great to have on the podcast and enjoyed the conversation. I think you're going to really get a lot out of this. So let me know what you think. Shoot me a note on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram direct message. I'd love to know how you like this podcast. And of course, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We've been jumping in the rankings in the business management section of Apple Podcasts. So reviews help. Uh, I think we're number 37 in the United States the last time I checked on Apple Podcasts. So, uh, and that's for business management category. So we're jumping and it's all thanks to you guys. Thanks for joining us and can't wait to talk to you next week. Hey, Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. Your book, Adaptive, Scaling Empathy and Trust to Create Workplace Nirvana. When did this book come out? And tell me what kind of really led you to write this book in the first place. Sure. Well, so the book came out in September of this year, so 2019. And it all goes back to a challenge that my chief operating officer gave me at the time that I was running his advanced research and development group. And he asked me to help him figure out a way to run our company in such a way that he could get a 10x productivity improvement, Mm. which is a moonshot by anybody's standards. This was a company, they were extraordinarily good at what they did. They had been doing it for a long time, and they were super happy with single-digit point percentage improvements. So to say, I wonder if we could do this all 10 times more effectively than we do it today was a real challenge. And so it forced me to think about the things that would have to happen. It's not just hiring additional people. It's not just technology. It had to be a complete rethink of how business got done with this company. And so we thought about what that would mean from an organizational perspective. That was one aspect of it. And we began to realize that in order for us to be as as fluid as we needed to be in the markets that we were going to tackle, that the traditional organizational structures that people have used for 160 years probably weren't going to work. And so we started this crazy idea where we decided we were going to just see, well, what if we did 360 reviews on a regular basis? We switched from a managerial model to a coaching model. And all of these things really started to work. 
and we started to see real improvements in productivity and engagement. But then we realized that in order for us to do this at scale, it would be impossible. And that's where this idea of using chatbots operating in platforms like Slack or Microsoft Teams could really make a huge difference. You described throughout the book and really the premise behind Adaptive is this adaptive experiment that you ran and started in 2013. Is that also what you're describing with the things that you did in that organization? Or did you take this to a whole different level and do it for other organizations and collect data in the process? Well, so I had been fascinated by this idea of empowering people with technology to manage themselves, gosh, since probably 2006. In 2012, I built the data analytics practice for my last company, which launched a you know, huge market adjustment for my company. And then I got to this place where I realized, okay, I could probably do this at scale with this company. And so I already had the foundation of the idea, but it wasn't really fully baked. And so that's where the experiment came from. So we got to a place where it was so successful that my chief operating officer and my chief executive officer kind of looked at me one day and said, you got to do something with this. And our company had just gotten purchased again, and it felt like the right time to leave. And I had done very well with my last company. And so I decided to start a new company that does this. And I now got my mm. first client and it's going great. I was terrified that it wasn't going to translate, but it hasn't. And it's been just the most fun I've ever had. I think people are hungry for this because things are just happening so fast with technology, which is actually interesting about your book is that you talk about technology a lot. We'll talk about chatbots and all those things. But your subtitles even, you know, scaling empathy and trust. So obviously, there's such a human aspect to business and people are trying to figure out how do you pair technology with the human part to unlock just the most powerful piece of business that we're missing, which is collaboration and, you know, side by side with technology. So right? one of the most fascinating things that's happened to me since I came out with this platform and I wrote this book is I've gotten... You know, this deluge of people coming at me with artificially intelligent chatbots that are designed to coach people. And, you know, gosh, I think to myself, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> business is all about people working together to do great things, right? Yeah. 155 years ago when the org chart was patented, back then, those guys were running railroads, they were running manufacturing plants, and people were expected to behave like robots. And that worked well for them. Now, fast forward to today's information age where many of us are in a service industry of some kind, be that insurance or whatever. And well, creativity is king now. And so the idea that you could introduce a bunch of artificially intelligent bots and that will somehow make life better for these people who felt so dehumanized over the years, that that's going to make it better. Well, no, it's not. It's actually going to make things much worse. And so what I discovered with these bots is that it's not about the bot helping the coaching process. It's about the bot yeah. facilitating the coaching process, facilitating the collaboration, getting people to actually work together in a productive, collaborative way to achieve great things. And that's what we all just crave. We all want to be part of that amazing experience where we build something that we can tell our grandkids about. We're so excited by the idea. And that does not come from a sterile world of artificially intelligent bots. It comes from us working together and helping each other as humans. That's such a great point. And there's a quote I grabbed that I think articulates that point even better within your book. So 
The quote says, people are not robots, but a new age is dawning in which humans will be augmented by powerful bots. This might sound scary to some, but bots and robots will enable humans to be, well, more human, end quote. Perfect, right? It's saying that like, okay, you're not going to have this artificial intelligence fully do the coaching for you, but you as a human side by side with the tools of a bot is going to make you really effective. And it's going to allow you to be more human in the process, connect with people at a deep level. That's right. And take away the stuff that makes us feel inhuman. You know, think about if you're working in a corporation and you have to fill out this form, you have to follow that process, you have to do these very robotic things. Work is a fundamentally dehumanizing experience for many people because of the robotic performance that is expected of us. And so if you can figure out a way to offload those robotic behaviors to something that's really good at being robotic, which would be a bot, then that frees you up to be more human. And that was the exact experience I felt when we launched this platform, the prototype of it. And this was the prototype. It's not anything like what we have today. So in the transition from being the pointy-haired manager and writing people to get certain things done or making sure that they get certain tasks completed, once I offloaded that to the bot, mm -hmm. suddenly I was able to establish a much deeper relationship with the people on my team to the point where the engagement went through the roof. And the experience was just so much more rewarding for me as an individual. And I think also for my team as well, because suddenly it wasn't me writing them to get something done. It was the bot writing them to do something. And the hilarious thing is that even though this bot was operating from my rules, I programmed, mm -hmm. because it was now the thing that was doing this, it suddenly freed me from having to be that person engaging that dehumanizing behavior. And so it was really a very freeing experience to have these bots helping us with offloading those robotic behaviors. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm kind of an economics nerd. For a while, I was reading a ton of economics books, just I was fascinated by it. And I remember reading this book one time, I think it's called Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell. And he described basic economics is all about highest and best use, supply, demand. And what you described mm -hmm. there is exactly that, look, as humans, we need to be freed up to work on something that's more valuable somewhere where we need to be. And if you have these administrative things that bots can do faster, and it frees us up to work, you know, with people, why wouldn't you do it? I know it's scary for a lot of people. But I think that's where we need to go. And we're already there, right? I think, yeah, that's actually I think that's where we already are. What I believe is happening is these technologies and these advancements and the kinds of dynamics that you're bringing up, they're already happening. We mm -hmm. haven't acknowledged them, though, and so we're not fully exploiting a movement that I think is already afoot. And one of the things I suggest in this book is that, look, the technologies available to do what I'm describing are already available. Taking advantage of them will make the transition smoother and easier for you, but realize this transition's already happening. 
you're describing hierarchical companies and you said at some point that a company's culture is like it's always changing but it's usually dictated by whoever's in power and that's what the hierarchical company mm -hmm. what is the fluidity of a culture look like when it's flatter you know using all the things that you're describing in the book yeah gosh that's a great point so in the book i talk about how the culture of a company can change with a single change in ceo or chief mm -hmm. operating officer or wherever in the hierarchy, if that person has enough positional power, they can completely change the culture for good or bad. And in the book, what I describe is when you have a more fluid organization, one that's lined with a strategy as opposed with a person, and individuals are empowered to make their own decisions about how to best serve that strategy, then who's in control of the culture? And the reality is nobody. So that's why I suggest in the book that it is key in this transition to be very clear about your culture. It can't be mouse pad values, right? You can't have like a banner in a cubicle someplace that people eventually forget and walk by. It needs to be something that is a narrative. It is a story that people can make themselves the hero of. The company that I saw did this best was Valve and they created a story. It's almost like a comic book. Their employee handbook describes their culture. It's almost like a comic book and it describes you, the new employee, as the hero of the story. How cool. Yeah, super cool. And the great thing about that approach is that it doesn't enable any one individual to co-opt the story. The story is part of the fabric of the organization's culture. And that is the key to enabling people to be more independent in their decision making. Because they can now make those decisions as the hero of that story. And if somebody senses that an individual outside of that storyline, they can check them fairly easily. And so what I talk about in the book is that really this is something that everybody should do. Have a well-defined culture, but go one step further than what most people have done in the past, which are just values on a mouse pad. Instead, yeah. you actually describe the story of the people in your organization and what it looks like to be the hero. What does winning look like? Describe that in the cultural narrative and now suddenly the company, the individual employees now own that culture. Yeah, that's so empowering. And you even like describe with a lot of these tools now and organizations that are using this adaptive model, they are breaking down communication barriers. There's tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams and a whole host of others where you got CEOs communicating with even the lowest level of employees. And so in that case, it really doesn't seem to be hierarchy. It's more collaborative, right? Yeah, I think the transition I spoke to earlier is already underway. So the idea that we all operate in this hierarchy is a bit artificial because with technologies like Slack or Microsoft Teams or there's like a host of these other collaboration platforms out there, now what you see is organizations forming and collapsing in hours, days, or weeks. And those Slack channels or the conversations that are happening in these platforms They'll often arise in response to a problem or a challenge. And then as that problem or challenge begins to fade away, that channel collapses. So interestingly, Steve Jobs, probably 20 years ago, described this exact model. And at the Slack conferences, they'll often play a video of an interview with Steve Jobs talking about how this will be the future of organizations. And the CEO, Mr. Butterfield, will often say, well, you know, there's our first marketing campaign for Slack, but it was, you know, 10, 15, 20 years before Slack even came out. But even Steve Jobs recognized that there was going to come a day 
when these kinds of organizational structures that we become so used to are going to begin to fade away and morph into something else. And it's happening right now. I love it because it's empowering to people. At the lowest levels, people can make decisions not to rely on a sole leader, right? Exactly right. What that does is it enables those leaders who have historically been burdened with these administrative tasks of management to transition into a servant leader role, which many yeah. people argue is necessary and important, but very few actually have the means or the time to do that. And that's what happened to me was I became embarrassingly idle. Once I had mm. these operating, I kept this to myself at the time. I was like, gosh, I don't have a lot to do because I've got these bots here and all this <laughs> overhead for me. And just kind you have of an imposter syndrome at the time, probably. <laughs> You're like, what am I doing here? I felt guilty. And I don't know, to salve my guilt, I continued building these bots and I continued working on them. And it just made the problem worse. But what it enabled me to do is transition into being almost a full-time coach for my team. That's amazing. Awesome. Yeah. And on that note, so there's part that I loved when you're talking about coaching and, and the role of leaders. So you posed a question that said, could you imagine if we ran football teams like we run companies? And then you <laughs> go on to illustrate Tom Brady is ready to throw the football, but the only person open is the fullback. So he decides to send an email to the coach asking what he should do because there's no qualified running backs who could make the catch instead. Yeah. And I was like, wow, you're so right. Like a coach's job is really all about preparation and making sure that you can put somebody in a position to succeed in the moment. But they are ones making the decision in the game. Mm -hmm. so employees would be no different. And I don't know why we don't treat our leaders that way, where it's all about prep and making sure that they have all the tools and they are going to succeed when they're faced with the decision and they should be empowered to make that decision. So I thought that was a beautiful illustration of that point. I think you need to look at the through line from where this all began. So 1856, 1854, Daniel McClellan patents the organizational chart. And at that time, there was a very distinct class of workers. There was the management class, and then there was basically the proletariat, the individuals who worked at the line level. Those individuals were not professionals. Often they did not have a high school education. Often they had no more than, say, a third, fourth, or fifth grade education. My grandmother, for instance, only had a third grade education before she went to work. So we had this model that was designed basically to get a robotic precision out of people without a professional degree. And at that time, of course, it was a great idea. It was a really good idea. You know, I give Daniel McClellan all the credit in the world for that. Fast forward to today. Well, almost everybody's got a high school education. Up to 30% of workers now have a college education or college level education of some kind. They are professional. Most organizations are staffed with professionals. And what we never stop to think is, okay, now we've got professionals. Is there a better way to help these people organize and succeed than the technology we were using from 160 years ago? What is the key person syndrome that you talk about? You called it the equivalent of a Chinese finger trap. <laughs> I yeah. love this section. <laughs> so key person used to be called key man. There actually used to be something called key man insurance. I had it on myself a few times. And the wow. idea is you have an individual who is so valuable to the organization for whatever reason. They're on a critical project. They know some critical aspect of the technology. And often what happens with these key persons is that they become so critical to the organization that they can't move. 
they can't take on a new responsibilities, they can't move to a different part of the organization because they are so valuable in the position they're in and backfilling them or training somebody else is simply untenable. And so that person becomes trapped. And so you get this really awful situation where this individual feels trapped, they're unhappy, they can't leave. And oftentimes the people that I've met, they have real loyalty to the company and they have real empathy for their colleagues. And so they feel as though if they leave, they're going to put their company and their colleagues in a bad position. So they're stuck there in that place. Is a truly terrible dynamic. And I think that it happens so much more frequently than people acknowledge. And if you were to just look around and begin to ask yourself, how many of these situations do I have? You could probably draw a straight line from that to low engagement. Yeah, it makes me wonder because in reading that section, I'm like, I see it all the time, right? But like, how do you get away from it? That's yeah. the key to it all. Like, I don't even know how you do it. Well, so I've been running advanced research and development teams for years now. And so it happens to me on a regular basis. This is the norm for me, not the exception. So I've developed a number of techniques that I write about in the book, one of which is to play war games. So purposefully send that person on vacation. Pretend mm. like they quit and make it such that the remaining team is not allowed to talk to that individual at all. So give that person a true vacation. Send them away for two, maybe three, maybe sometimes four weeks and create a black box around that person. And then as individuals realize, oh my goodness, we need Frank to address this issue, but Frank's on vacation, then write those down. Have the team keep a journal of all the places where that person really did play a critical role and his or her expertise was absolutely necessary. Catalog all that stuff and then turn those into issues to begin resolving once that person returns. Now, of course, if you run into a production issue, then go ahead and give Frank a call. But doing these kinds of war games where, you know, you pretend like that person quit, those are very healthy for the organization. The other one we used to do is when a person who was a key person was like, look, either I got to get something new or I'm going to quit. Great. Give them an opportunity to quit to another part of the company. So, yes, you know, they're leaving from that role, but they're leaving from that role in a safe way. This is something that I've noticed a lot of organizations are not willing to do because they feel like. If they let that person move, then things are going to start to go sideways. But what they don't really appreciate is that it's going to go sideways even worse if that person just ups and quits. So better to give them a way to quit safely, but to a different part of the company. Let's talk about bots a little bit because you've mentioned it several times that you're using them, you're building them. Define at the most basic level for some of the folks that are listening who may not know what bots are and how they could be used. Maybe just describe the function of it and then how an organization might be able to use them. Yeah, so a bot is a semi-intelligent, autonomous application that typically operates in some sort of a chat platform. Maybe sometimes you've run to these on a help desk or when you're at your bank and a little chat thing pops up on the right-hand side. Often those are fielded initially by these semi-intelligent autonomous bots, not humans. Yep. It's often coming after them. So what I did was I realized that in order for me to manage collaboration at scale to solve really big strategic problems, I was not personally capable of handling that kind of complexity. But I was able to get a bot to do that kind of organization for me. And at the time, we were using HipChat, which was later bought by Slack, and Slack put them out of business. We started using Slack, and Slack is a great platform. Microsoft Teams is another one. They're very similar to Slack. 
But, you know, you can imagine instead of chatting with a person, you're instead working with a bot that's operating in that same environment. The great thing about bots operating in that environment is it's where people are all day anyway. They're collaborating with their colleagues. They're sharing files back and forth. And so the big idea, and I have to give credit to a colleague of mine who was working with me at the time because he's the one who said, you should really do this in Slack, is we created this bot. And what we noticed is that as people were collaborating with one another, they were using the bot to orchestrate that collaboration. And the bot was able to, in the moment, help them be a better person. I think that Twitter and all the toxic things we see on on forums. <laughs> you now, think? Yeah, that is all because it's done anonymously and without anybody checking your behavior. And so what we did with these bots was we said, okay, you go ahead and collaborate with one another, but we built a time delay into the collaboration. And in that time delay, the bot would take a look at what you just wrote. We would do some natural language analysis and we'd come back to you and say, hey, I think you could get your point across more effectively and in a more productive way if you did this, that, or the other thing. And so what we were able to do was coach the entire organization at scale using this bot to be more actionable, more positive, and writing comments in such a way that improved and deepened relationships as opposed to potentially upsetting somebody. Because frankly, I think if you've ever read a forum, there's a thing called Godwin's Law. It says the longer a forum thread goes on, the higher the likelihood that somebody else is going to call somebody a Nazi. Oh and if you think about it, Twitter is like a key example of this because yes, it is. I say something and it's so easy to take that in the wrong way. In fact, one day I was just looking for a chocolate pudding recipe to make. And even in the chocolate pudding recipe comments, two people got crossways with one another and started arguing over a chocolate pudding recipe. The bot, one of the things it tries to do is just make sure that everybody is being positive, actionable, and working on relationships in such a way that they make them more productive. And you can do that at scale with a bot. And I'm curious, like, how do you build these? And maybe this is a whole different topic and conversation, but I would imagine, like, they're built by humans. So at some point, it is subjective in nature, but I like the scalable aspect of it. Can you download bots where like you're describing coaching and helping people? Like, how does that all work? Yeah, I'll give you just a nickel tour. So it really all comes down to AWS Lambda. AWS Lambda is an incredibly powerful technology. Now, and other platforms have these capabilities too now. Azure has functions and Google Compute even has one. But the idea is a Lambda is just a little snippet of code that you can run. And the powerful thing about Lambda is that it has access to every single capability inside of AWS. Natural language processing, natural language analysis, machine learning algorithms. And so with just a little bit of code, that's how I got this whole thing started. Was I wrote these little Lambda functions, I was able to then tap into all the other capabilities in AWS. And now very quickly, I was able to come up with something that looked really impressive. In reality, these bots don't need to be all that smart in order to be effective. And so the prototype we built was relatively simple, but it achieved a lot. The new platform that we built, far more sophisticated, but at the end of the day, all it's really doing is a more advanced version of what I did in that prototype. When we talk about how employees might be using bots in the future, I'm curious what you think about, um, let me just, I'll post something for you. So let's say I'm about to go into a one-on-one -on -one meeting and I'm in preparation. I'm asking the bot some questions um, in prep, but what if we, we end up using them so much where it becomes a crutch 
to where when you're not using it or you don't have access to it, you kind of freeze when you're having these human to human interactions. What a fantastic, you know what I'm, yeah, <laughs> fantastic question. And I've never thought about it like that before, but let me tell you what it looked like in practice. So when I first introduced the bot, I didn't have this natural language coaching to help people produce really productive feedback to their colleagues or collaborate with them in really productive ways. I introduced that for my own benefit because I was concerned that, you know, my language may be misinterpreted. I can be a bit brusque at times. And so I introduced this and then I rolled it out to everybody else. And the way that it worked was it would give you as many opportunities as you wanted to correct your comments before it sent them. What I discovered was that people would use it a lot in the beginning. So they would rewrite their stuff three, four, five, six times. In fact, I just had a client tell me they rewrote their stuff nine times before they actually finally figured out the guy right. But then what I noticed by looking at the log files is that this reliance on the bot dramatically dropped over time. And then people were hardly ever rewriting their stuff and the results were looking great. And so it actually comes to a phenomena called perceptual learning. And this is the real power of these bots. Perceptual learning is learning an activity by having an expert say yes or no or guiding you lightly in the activity in the moment. Yep. So the example that I use in the book is chicken sexing. If I gave you a box of, of baby chicks and I said, tell me which one of these are males or females, you would have no idea. <laughs> However, if you had an expert standing behind you and you picked up a chicken, said male, and the expert said female, after just a few hours, you would be as effective at sexing chickens as that expert behind you, even though that that expert cannot tell you how they themselves are sexing that chicken. That was the exact same phenomena that I saw with these bots. And I have to give a, a shout out to Kathy Sierra, who wrote a great book called Making Users Badass that describes this perceptual learning phenomena. And it's applicable in a lot of different ways from yeah. simple and complex. Well, I'll give you an example from my own personal life. So, and I don't know if this is really considered a bot, but it's definitely, I think it illustrates your point that you're making. Grammarly, you've heard of that mm -hmm. tool, right? So I use it all the time. I'm in marketing, so I write a lot. Well, I use Grammarly to make sure I make no mistakes, you know, commas where they need to be, all those sort of things, like these basic things. But I noticed over time, as it continues to correct my mistakes, I would just make less of them in the future because it's explaining to me the mistakes that I'm making and it'll like score it and rate it. Well, as I continue to write in the future, I'm just making less mistakes. So this technology, I was using it as a crutch at first, but now it's just improving me overall. So that's a fantastic example. And to build on that, Grammarly just released a new feature where they will read your emails for you and tell you what the sentiment of the email is. It is a positive email. <laughs> oh gosh, wow. Yeah. And I thought, gosh, that's it right there. Uh, because now what you'll see, I would hope, is not only that kind of support in emails, but also in Twitter and all these other things. I think what happens is the anonymity of chat-based technologies like Twitter or even Facebook, uh, you write something and people read that in their own reality, not in your reality. You wrote that in your own reality, but somebody else is reading that in their reality. And their reality might be different than yours. And so, 
it's very easy to get crossways with somebody unless you very carefully craft your messages in such a way that they're designed to create productive, positive interactions with other people. So this is where I hope these kinds of technologies are going to start showing up in places like Twitter because, you know, that kind of toxic exchange, it, it doesn't get us anything. You know, it's, it's not getting us anything except for maybe advertising revenue for those of you, you know, interested in that sort of thing. But it's not helping us as a business to be better with one another. And that's in order for us to solve the big, massive problems that are coming at us on a daily basis now because of new technology changes, changes in demographics. It has to be all of us working together in a happy, productive way, because otherwise we're going to get taken over by some small startup that has those dynamics in place from the beginning. I love that. Well, we only scratched the surface, Chris. We got to go, though, unfortunately. Like in parting, like what would you want to tell you know, leaders who are listening to the podcast or even HR professionals maybe aren't using these technologies yet, but are intrigued by what you're describing and want to take a leap forth? Like what are they, what's the like action item for them? Yeah, so I guess my biggest piece of advice to your audience is don't fight technologies like Slack and Teams accept them, embrace them. They are like water. They will find a way into your organization, whether you like them or not. I promise you, your employees already have some, many of your employees probably already have Slack installed on their phones for other reasons, perhaps working with their colleagues. And then roll these technologies out in a planful way. Don't just spring them on the company or on the organization and say, Godspeed, good luck, make good decisions. It is the worst way to get these technologies out there in a productive way. I've seen it so many times. I've talked to so many companies who are now backing into a strategy for a failed rollout. And these technologies can actually increase negativity in the organization unless they are rolled out in a planful, managed way. So I would say, you know, embrace them and then come up with a plan to roll them out to the organization in a way that is going to serve your company's strategy as opposed to potentially working against it. My guest has been Chris Creel. He's the author of Adaptive, Scaling, Empathy, and Trust to Create Workplace Nirvana. Chris, where can people find the book? Imagine it's on Amazon and some other places, but where can people find about the book and you and anything else you're up to? Yeah, so I would encourage your listeners to connect with me on LinkedIn. Just go out there and search for Chris Creel. And Adaptive is adaptive.team is our website. So adaptive.team. So you can go check out our website. And of course, the book is on Amazon and you can get the Kindle version for $9.99. So it's a great deal. A lot of great content in there. And I think you're going to really love it. Thanks, Chris. Thank you.